Are we obligated to be grateful? Diana Butler Bass is an independent scholar who focuses on American religion, history, and culture. In this episode, she sat down to talk about her book, Grateful. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Diana, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, I'm glad to be here, and it's uh, been a great week with the Beekner workshop, and it's been fun to talk about the book that I have coming out next spring. Yeah. Well, we are very excited to talk to you about your book. So you are writing, or you have written the book on gratitude, titled Grateful. Yes. And usually in talking to folks about a book, the source of that book flows either from a problem that they see in the world or some sort of internal conflict they've had that they're wrestling through. So can you talk about why you would want to write a book like this? Well, I I didn't want to write a book on (laughs) on gratitude uh, because one of my sacred rules of writing is that if you're going to write something, you should know something about it. And um, I confess the whole sort of spiritual practice of gratitude has always been a bit elusive to me. And the first chapter of the book is actually called Confessions of an Ingrate. Mm. So it arose um, in in a simple way, in some senses, the way most of my books emerge. And that is at the end of Grounded, which was my last book, my editor, now agent, uh, came to me and said, what should what should you write about? What would you like your next book to be about? And over a course of years, he and I had noticed that every book that I write emerges from a question that I left unresolved in the former book. And so I realized I'd just written this beautiful book about nature and neighbor, and there's a picture of a tree on the cover of Grounded. And I had thought, oh gosh, well, what grows on a tree? Fruit. And I'd never read a book from a liberal, progressive, Christian perspective on the fruit of the Spirit. So my first sort of take with uh, Roger, my agent, was, I want to write a book on the fruit of the Spirit. And so we looked at the Galatians uh, verses where they appear, and uh, he said, oh my gosh, there are nine of these. And I said, (laughs) yeah, that's a lot. And he said, knowing you, that's going to take you nine years to write that book. Um, why Why don't you write on one? And I, I got very uh, sort of honed in on the uh, the fruit of joy. And um, I, I did not know that Miroslav Wolf, for example, at Yale, was doing this project on joy that yeah. uh, that had sort of gotten past me somewhere in the news cycle. Uh, but um, I got interested in the idea of joy, and I started looking it up. And almost all of the first people that I read something short um, regarding joy all said that joy was related to gratitude. And I thought, well, that's interesting because gratitude is such a popular word Mm -hmm. in our culture right now. So I said, well, instead of taking joy directly, I could come at the whole thing through the side and do gratitude. So my, I was really leaning that direction. And then Roger and I talked again and I said, I'm having trouble picking which one of these I should go with. And I said, what do you think? And he looked at me and said, I think you should write about uh, gratitude. And so that was like, okay. Decision made. Yeah, absolutely. Deal with the inner ingrate. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And, uh, you know, it's funny to confess this, but, uh, you know, why why not? Um, Part of my struggle with gratitude 
came after Grounded. And, you know, here I am, I'm a writer, and a lot of people read my books. And, and I've really been blessed in significant ways with this, with this lovely career, this lovely vocation of writing, and people who care about what I write. Um, but I actually felt angry uh, because I have, you know, I'm not Anne Lamont. You know, I'm I'm not on the New York Times bestseller list. And so while people would look at me and say, oh, she's really successful, I would look at others and say, I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. And that that gap for me had created a real inner turmoil about being able to appreciate the life that I have. And so when I was thinking about gratitude and then Roger, who I've known for years and who is as honest with me as any human being can be, you know, besides my husband. It's really Richard and Roger who hold me to account on almost Mm -hmm. everything. Then he said that he thought I needed to write about gratitude. I thought, well, I wanted to write about the fruit of the spirit. I think that's the work of the spirit. Yeah. So lay some groundwork. So when most people hear the word gratitude, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And is that how we should think about gratitude or not? I think most people think, first of all, of a feeling, uh, of surprise, appreciation, of uh, maybe humility if somebody does something nice for you. Uh, so gratitude as a feeling is probably the primary way people engage gratitude in our culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is true. Uh, gratitude is a feeling. It is emotion, an emotion or a set of emotions. Um, but it's a lot more as well. Mm-hmm. So to just, for example, there was a question that the Pew um, survey, the American Religious Landscape Survey, asked about gratitude. They're trying to measure spirituality, which mm. is interesting. A lot of organizations are trying to figure out how to measure that now. And Pew... Th- put a question on their 2014 survey and the question was have you in this last week uh, felt a deep sense of gratitude and 78 percent of Americans said that they had and I got fascinated by that statistic Mm -hmm. because one 78 percent of Americans don't agree on anything yeah it's very rare to reach that kind of level of numerical assent on any kind of national survey And I just kept thinking, well, what do they mean by it? And, uh, you know, you don't know that when people are answering a survey. But the the word, have you felt a deep sense of gratitude, sort of tipped me in the direction of um, at least assuming that most Americans, first of all, think of a feeling. Yeah. And so what else is going on? So feeling it, there's like a psychological side to that. Mm -hmm. And then you've mentioned to me that you also approach it as an ethic. So can you describe what you mean by what's an ethic of gratitude? <laughs> well, I was fascinated by the literature around gratitude. It's written by primarily, the serious literature on gratitude is written primarily by two different groups of people. Uh, one is... What do you mean when you say serious? Oh, Just well, to tease it apart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot of popular literature on gratitude that's written by uh, the self-help community mm-hmm. And uh, there's a surprising amount that's written by, like, Pentecostal pastor's wives. Mm -hmm. And so there is a kind of a pop literature of gratitude in that way. But then there's really serious academic studies um, of gratitude. And they're written from 
primarily two fields. Uh, one is psychology therapy and um, this whole sort of field that's now called positive psychology. And so um, positive psychology is very serious. You know, I'm sure there's a professor here at Princeton, at least one, uh, who has a PhD in positive psychology. And they're the people who are studying things like virtues and happiness and trying to figure out what helps people arrive at a life of flourishing. And so that's mostly in psychology. And then the second group of people who are writing about gratitude are mostly philosophers. And those are people who are looking at structures and systems of gratitude and how they have functioned intellectually, politically, and economically, um, mostly in Western culture over the last thousand, two thousand or so years. And so there's a real divide in the literature. There's the literature of emotion and human wellness and human wholeness. And then there's a, a, a literature that really is about what I would call um, a literature of exchange or reciprocality. And so if you went to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, for example, which I have read this article, there's a large, substantial article on gratitude. And it it actually has the mathematics of gratitude within really yeah within the article what is the i don't what is the mathematics of gratitude <laughs> well the mathematics of gratitude is that you would have like benefactor a uh gives a benefit to beneficiary b yeah. and then there's some sort of expected mathematical relational response that b has um an exchange where he the benefactor beneficiary to give something back to the benefactor. And so there's this whole complex argument about how that mathematical equation should be structured and if there are outside factors that influence this. It's it's actually quite deep and very interesting and I had no idea that there were philosophical slash mathematical formulas yeah. uh, for benefactors, benefits, and beneficiaries, and how that works, and what counts as a real benefit, and who can be seen as a benefactor, and what is a legitimate beneficiary. And so there's a real intense ethical structure um, of gratitude that philosophers have explored for a couple decades. That's fascinating. So when you were researching, mm -hmm. was there something that just surprised you or kind of bowled you over that you discovered that you had never thought about before? Oh, there was... Other than the mathematics? <laughs> there was really uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, part of the structure and the argument of the book is based in the argument that I discovered in the literature. And that is the positive psychology people and the more general therapist community they aren't very interested in the deeper sort of structural ethical issues. They're, isu they're interested in issues of, of practice on a personal basis, but in terms of beneficiaries and who counts as a beneficiary and what the structure should look like and how you draw a picture of that and uh, you know how you would go about teaching it on a, a college level, uh, that's not really their concern. Their, their concern is really human well-being and how we arrive at that. 
Well, those, the philosophers, on the other hand, are completely disinterested, <laughs> it looks like, from the literature I've read, in um, the emotional well-being and the sort of health benefits of gratitude. They're really very interested in the ideas of social structure. And so there's a divide, and you actually see there's a little bit of poo-pooing on both sides or outright ridicule mm -hmm. especially from the philosophers towards the people who are the emotional benefit people mm -hmm. so I kept thinking about this and I thought well I don't want to take away either side of this um, gratitude as an emotion is really important and it really does uh, according to all these kinds of studies, scientific studies and, psych and, and psychology, it really does create better outcomes uh, for human beings in terms of our actual physical health, in terms of our happiness, our relationships. If you are a grateful person, all sorts of things go better for you. Um, and so that's really all true. And just because the somebody talks about it on Oprah doesn't mean it's not true. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to really embrace that and hold on to that and, and to celebrate it. But I also didn't want to separate it from deeper issues of social justice and, and political and communal structures. Because I think that right now the temptation in culture is that if you want to be happy, you know, you sort of go reeling off into your own territory and you pay attention to your own personal spiritual practices, mm -hmm. which I've always encouraged and think is a good thing. But if you don't connect those practices to the deeper structures of community and social justice, well, uh, you know, then you're taking care of yourself, but are you really taking care of your neighbor? So I wanted to try to relink uh, those concepts. Mm -hmm and really uh, play with that and see where it would take me. And so the, the putting together the emotional and the ethical was really interesting to me. And uh, I, th I think that ultimately my own aha came when I realized that one of the reasons they got separated in the first place is that the social structure, st structures of gratitude, although it sounds like a good thing, they have often been very negative. They've Can you give me an example of what one of those structures would be? Yeah, the, the negative way that gratitude gets structured into society is the idea of um, quid pro quo and in hierarchies. And so medieval society, very structured around the idea of gratitude, is that everyone was a vassal mm -hmm. uh, to the king who was the ultimate benefactor to the whole of society. And that as a vassal, you owed a certain kind of debt of gratitude depending upon your social status to the people who were above you. Mm -hmm. And the people who were above you provided you with protection. And, um, you know, they just, that was pretty much what they provided you with, mm -hmm. come to think of it. There wasn't much else because <laughs> you provided them. If you're on the bottom part, you provide them with wealth and loyalty. Yeah. And then they provide you with, you know, safety primarily. And, and so that structure of gratitude was deeply built into Western culture. And it was, it was awful in certain ways, because if you weren't loyal to the person who was above you, the per, you were seen as an ingrate. And there's a lot of literature in Western 
even Western politics that talks about how ingratitude, Shakespeare wrote this, that ingratitude was the worst of all sins. Hmm. And so that's a person who's not loyal according to his or her station. And if you're not loyal, what you're doing is you're, you're undermining that whole system that ties people together in protection and benefit. So the ingrate um, becomes a person who can be uh, punished, sent to debtor's prison if they don't pay their debt to society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where do we even get all that language? Yeah. You know, it's like you owe a debt to the people above you. Um, and if you don't pay your taxes or if you don't give your loyalty or you don't obey the law, you've broken that bond of gratitude. And which so, in that system is inherently hierarchical. Which is always absolutely hierarchical. And so what flows up is wealth, mostly, and obligation. And uh, so, so the people on the bottom, they put a lot into the system and they get precious little in return. The people who are at the higher levels of the system get a bit more. So if you're a, sort of an upper vassal, you know, the, the brother of the king or um, a, a knight, uh, the king might reward your loyalty or your tithe payment with a beautiful piece of land, or you might get to marry the king's niece or you know, something to that effect. So there were uh, better benefits if you were higher in the system. But certainly if you're a slave or a peasant, or a farmer, whatever, uh, you don't get much other than the fact that you get to run to the castle um, when the Germans are invading, mm-hmm. you know, something to that effect. But um, it was a very unfair system. And um, even the, the, the Protestant reformers recognized this because this whole system of debt and obligation had really worked itself into the church. And so much of the ideas of sin and salvation that we had going into the Reformation were ideas that, you know, God is the benefactor and God will uh, protect and provide. And our job was that we had to obey and tithe. Pay a debt of gratitude. Right. Pay that debt of gratitude. And that the church managed that debt of gratitude. And so there was everything from, you know, the the giving of offerings at church, which would sometimes involve money, but more often uh, involved a percentage of the the land, the gifts of the land. So you have these wonderful harvest festivals in medieval Europe. But a lot of those harvest festivals were when you brought your taxes, you know, big sacks of potatoes um, to the king so that the king could eat all winter. And you got to keep some small amount of that. But there was a feast in the palace and you hoped you had enough food to get through. Um, so, But that was all navigated by the church. And then, of course, the actual uh, freedom from sin and the, 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 the structure of indulgences and confession and all of those things. And eventually, you know, Luther and Calvin both um, just rejected that. And they said, they said, they said, no there really are no mediating structures Mm -hmm. between God as benefactor and us sinners, human beings as beneficiaries. And it, it, we don't need a system of gratitude. Instead, what we need is simply a community of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And so um, Luther and Calvin were quite radical in that way. And it's a seismic shift. Like it's a democratization of gratitude almost. Yeah. is that fair? Yes, it, it really is fair. And what was fascinating is that there, there are a couple intellectual histories of gratitude. And both of the books that I read that were written in that 
that mode mentioned that the reformers actually came the closest probably to the biblical intent of Jesus with this whole issue of uh, God as the giver of all gifts and that we uh, live lives of gratitude, not in a sort of a benefactor um, obligation relationship to God, but instead, because God gives all gifts, we then turn around and give all gifts to everyone else. And so that the real biblical arrangement of gratitude is, is a circle, is that we live in, in a world of abundance where God is the creator and that we, that there are ultimately no benefactors other than God, but yet these gifts pass through our hands. And so we act as stewards on behalf of God, as benefactors to all people who are around us. And so everyone is potentially a benefactor and everyone is potentially a beneficiary. Mm-hmm. There is no fixed role yeah. of any of those those things because ultimately God is um, the giver of everything. Uh, so that, I, I really think that that's probably right, that Luther and Calvin were pushing towards that. And I think that they said it in certain ways, but their, their culture was so tightly knotted around um, hierarchies and quid pro quos and this whole structure of debt and obligation um, that it took about another 150 or 200 years for some of that social culture to begin to get dislodged. Mm-hmm. And uh, that began to happen in the political arena. And it has a, just a very interesting intellectual history. So those were all things that really surprised me um, and that I enjoyed learning. Yeah, I had never, I never stopped to think about all this before, yeah. a- and uh, I found myself dazzled and dismayed uh, by how relevant this whole discussion about structures of gratitude and the emotions of gratitude um, are to our culture right now. Yeah. So when you look around, do you see that there are? I mean, clearly we can look at a monarchy and say, you know, this is a structure in which. The majority of people are suffering, but being told that they owe us. I mean, what parallels when you open your eyes? Do you see like, here's gratitude being abused almost or neglected or? I was actually amazed at how much of the 2016 election was about gratitude Hmm. and uh, false notions of gratitude. Uh, One of the most sort of telling examples of it was the whole controversy that was um, exploded really around the $500,000 speech Hillary Clinton uh, gave to Goldman Sachs. Now, when I I think uh, Bernie Sanders brought this up and his followers were engaged in that critique, they were looking at it as a critique about uh, social inequality and uh, and wealth. And, And I think that was probably the a, a decent set of questions to raise. Um, and certainly it was from Bernie Sanders' perspective. But the way it got picked up in the popular culture and then the way it got used by Donald Trump was absolutely fascinating to me because um, what it got eventually pitched as was not an argument about social inequality, but it was an argument about how Hillary Clinton was a beneficiary of these dark forces, these evil forces of benefactors who are, who are the people who control all this wealth in the world. 
And not only was it the $500,000 Goldman Sachs speech, but it was also uh, those donors to the Clinton Foundation. So is the assumption that her debt of gratitude then would be so overwhelming? Or... That's correct. Yeah. And that as a woman, of course, she's always in a position of a beneficiary. So it was overlaid with sexism. Um, and so a woman can only be a beneficiary. She clearly owes a debt to these organizations and these people who will control her. And that w the assumption was then made, uh, or the actual, it was actually stated um, throughout the Trump campaign, is it, Trump would say, I alone can fix it. And what he was then saying was that he was the ultimate benefactor that no one was funding his campaign, so he was beholden to no one. And, um, and and so this whole language of benefit and beneficiary and benefactor was was completely present through the, the campaigns. And um, I never heard anybody discuss that. Yeah. But it was it was present. Or it's almost idealized to be the person who who owes nothing to anyone. Yeah, and it was interesting today while we're taping, uh, the James Comey testimony is on. You know, who knows what this is going to be by the time people are listening to this podcast. Uh, but the thing that makes Trump more angry than anything, obviously, is people who are disloyal. And that's because Trump lives in a hierarchical system of gratitude that's structured exactly like our medieval and actually going back to the ancient Roman world, um, ancestors structured it. A structure of power, a structure of authority, a structure of a single person on top who is the ultimate benefactor. And then everyone has a slot underneath that depending upon uh, their their wealth, their privilege, their race. And, and I was really intrigued uh, while the campaign was going on, I'm doing all this research, is that clearly President Trump was not only claiming he would be the ultimate benefactor, but he also was claiming that the problem with America is that all of the wrong people were receiving benefit. Yeah. And so what he was promising his followers and his voters was, I know that you feel like other people have moved ahead of you in the beneficiary line. And that those people, black people, gay people, immigrants, whatever, they're not real beneficiaries. You, my supporters, are the real beneficiaries of American democracy, of the American economy, and I'm going to make sure that they get out of the way and that you get the benefits that are the benefits of being an American. And so there was a powerful argument there, uh, but it was based around a, a, what I would consider to be a corrupted structure of gratitude. Right. And so the promise there is just to reorder the hierarchy, oh. not to actually change anything. No, it was actually to get the, the the fake beneficiaries, in a sense, away from or out of the system or pushed to the bottom of the system. Mm -hmm. And the real beneficiaries, the people who deserve the benefit. And you hear, you hear, you hear not only President Trump, but you hear Paul Ryan, you hear Mitch McConnell. There's a, a, a kind of a deep language in some of the 
more extreme core. Well, I don't know if you can say extreme anymore. The Republicans are so so confused about this at this moment. There are very good Republicans who don't think this way, but it's very clear that there's a part of the Republican Party who really believe in things like a deserving poor or a deserving beneficiary, and then there are people who are undeserving. And and that kind of language um, is, is not really, I think, classically uh, Republican, but certainly has been what's taken over uh, the contemporary version of the Republican Party, but that's about beneficiaries and who deserves benefit, mm-hmm. and uh, and we don't talk about that enough, yeah. and we don't frame it with a lens of gratitude on. No, at we least do I not. never heard anyone talk about it that way before. No, uh, and I had neither. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> until I was you know so deeply into this literature while the campaign was going on, and then every single time I turned on the television, there was a political example that matched um, what I was talking about. And, and this demand for loyalty just fits completely. It's, it's like listening to a medieval, oh, medieval king talking about his vassals, mm-hmm. you know, calling them in and having them give loyalty oaths. That literally is what happened in the Middle Ages. And if you did not give a loyalty oath to the, the king, well, then you lost your land. You were driven off. You were sent into exile. And that's if you were lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the yeah. bad choice, uh, the bad choice would be if, uh, you know, you, you'd be sent to prison or you, your head would be cut off. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, your wife married to somebody else and your daughter sold into slavery. And, mm. and so that's the way disloyalty was treated then. But it was all based on gratitude. Yeah. And so, but that's the false structure. And so um, following the Reformation, that false structure and it took a while, was eventually challenged philosophically, and it was challenged by new ideas of democracy. So it was challenged politically. And um, one of the most interesting moments in the history of gratitude came when that challenge arose through people like John Locke and um, and uh, Adam Smith, really. Uh, they separated the political and economic realm from this structure of gratitude. And they let gratitude, as as this one author says, they left gratitude to the domestic sphere of women. Oh wow, I know, isn't that great? <laughs> and so one of these books said, I said, uh, so the only place that gratitude appears is in the novels of manners by people like Jane Austen. And it, it was just like it was dripping in condensation. So you go from the the like monarchical model of it. To, to a domestic. domestic model. That's correct. It's so dramatic. It really is. And then the domestic ma- model is ridiculed because it's the, the sphere of women. And so when I read that, I thought, darn right it did. And Jane Austen was brilliant about it. So I went back and I, I looked at uh, uh, Sense and Sensibility and uh, Pride and Prejudice, my two favorite Austin novels and it's fascinating because uh, you know she gratitude is really the the primary theme of both of those books um, but what happens is that Austin doesn't domesticate it she actually revolutionizes it and when you get to the end uh, particularly of Pride and Prejudice there's a complete revisioning of social structure around uh, Pemberley the the manner 
uh, where Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth finally, you know, are married and they they make home. And uh, the the last bit of the novel talks about how all this, all these different people from all these different stations of life, and people who have actually broken different norms of this social world of gratitude are all there at Pemberley and that they all are welcome at the table and I went oh my gosh Jane Austen was reading the Bible like way to go Jane yeah (laughs) and so so what was really happening is is yes it moved into the domestic sphere but in the domestic sphere in the hands of these brilliant women who are writing novels in the 18th and 19th century uh, they said, well, if men don't want to deal with this, we're just going to take it for ourselves. And uh, they began writing worlds where gratitude was uh, non-hierarchical and hospitable instead. And those visions, those literary visions, along with the Bible, I think become uh, really the deepest source for a new kind of um, social structure of gratitude. So as a Christian, when you're reading as you're doing this research and writing this book, is there just a scripture passage or a story that just keeps tumbling around in your head? Yes. You just keep coming back to which one is it? Well, interestingly enough, it's the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up Methodist, and so the way that I learned the Lord's Prayer was forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then I became an Episcopalian, and since Methodists were Anglicans, it's the same prayer. Mm-hmm. John Wesley just took it from one place and moved it over to the other. Um, I'm married to a Presbyterian, and so whenever I go and visit his church, it's uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And it was like, ooh, ooh, what's that? I don't think I really like that language. And um, lo and behold, as this book unfolded, I realized that the central message of Jesus is really the undoing of a structure of debt and obligation. And that the translation that Presbyterians use um, is is the correct one. Uh, And to say the Lord's Prayer and say, forgive our sins or forgive our trespasses, is to actually miss the deepest and most radical point of the Lord's Prayer. And that is the vision of Jesus for social structure is a debt-free society a society of complete abundance where the way that gifts work is that they pass through all of our hands and that all of us are simultaneously, Luther used to say, you know, simultaneously uh, justified and sinner. But I'd like to say we're all simultaneously benefactor and beneficiary and that our response to these gifts is overwhelming joy, appreciation, humility, all of the things that emerge as the gifts of the Spirit. And it is a responsibility, a moral responsibility for the sharing and the the equal distribution of that abundance to all. And so that's my most radical scripture these days, is the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Release us from a system and structure of debt and obligation that enslaves and allow us to live in total freedom. The freedom of God's gifted abundance. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's the book. Yeah.
That's really beautiful. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. I'm Garrett Mostowski, and I'm in charge of production. And I'm Christy Holly, and I'm the creative designer. Like what you're hearing? Let us know by rating us on iTunes. The Distillery Podcast is part of The Thread, a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more episodes and other content at thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.